Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Paul and Cheryl Chapman knew something was wrong the second they pulled into the apartment complex parking lot. They were there to check on Cheryl's sister, Nancy Newman. Nancy's boss had called Cheryl concerned earlier that morning, saying that Nancy was two hours late. Not only that, but her car was still parked outside the restaurant where she worked, and it had been for two full days. None of this made sense to Cheryl. For starters, Nancy's husband was out of state and had been for a couple of months, meaning that Nancy was the only one around to care for their two daughters. It wasn't like her to ditch her car so far from home. What if there was an emergency? Second, Nancy was rarely late to work, period. Two hours late? That just never happened. Things at the apartment complex looked peaceful enough, but once Cheryl turned the key to unlock the deadbolt of Nancy's door, the quiet that might have seemed serene under different circumstances became downright eerie. Paul must have sensed it too. He told Cheryl to stay put and went into the kitchen. Things looked normal. A half-drunk cup of coffee sat on the kitchen table, as did an ashtray with a few cigarette butts inside. It was odd that the tin Nancy used to keep her waitressing tips was out on the table, but nothing else seemed to miss. Then he peeked inside of Nancy's bedroom. Nothing caught his eye, so he moved on to the girls' rooms. That's when the panic started to hit. Eight-year-old Melissa Newman was lying on the floor, her legs bent awkwardly behind her. She wasn't moving. Paul circled back to Nancy's room. Something made him think that his quick peek hadn't been thorough enough, so this time he took a step inside the room. Nancy was splayed on the bed, motionless. Finally, Paul turned to the last bedroom, the one that belonged to three-year-old Angie. He didn't need to examine the body on the floor to understand that she was dead, too. The copious amounts of blood on her bed sheets made that immediately clear. Don't go back there, Paul warned his wife, who started to scream. Then he called 911. It wasn't the first homicide detectives had ever seen in Anchorage, Alaska, not by a long shot, but the mother and two daughters killed March 13, 1987, would be one of the highest profile criminal cases in the state's history and mark one of the earliest uses of FBI profiling to winnow a hefty pool of suspects. Before I start with this case, let me just say up front that this one is horrible. I had trouble sleeping after reading the autopsies. I'm going to be as clinical as possible when relaying what was done to these victims and only describe as much as is needed to tell the story properly. Some detail is necessary to explain the evidence detectives gathered, and that evidence is partly why this case is historically significant. But know that I won't be gratuitous. 
Nancy Newman was a 32-year-old Alaska transplant. She and her husband John were from Idaho, where they had met and married and had two children. But work had brought John to Anchorage in the spring of 1985. His wife and daughters followed a few months after that. It wasn't a glamorous life by any stretch. They lived in a modest three-bedroom apartment on Ide Street, not far from Nancy's sister, Cheryl, and her husband, Paul. It so happened that Cheryl had moved to Alaska first, which is where she met and married Paul some seven years before John and Nancy arrived. Though Nancy was a long way from Idaho, she loved being reunited with Cheryl, with whom she was incredibly close. The sisters even worked together, both working as waitresses at Gwenny's Old Alaska Restaurant. Having her sister close had been especially helpful to Nancy the past few months because John had been in California training for a new job. He wanted to shift gears to leave behind his job as a heavy equipment operator to become a locksmith instead. It was easier on his back. In these days before FaceTime, the two stayed in regular touch the old-fashioned way, calling each other on their home phones and chatting, sometimes for an hour or more at a time. That time apart was almost over, though. John was expected back in Anchorage in just two weeks. And then he got the phone call that his whole family had been murdered. He was extremely distraught. This is Detective Bill Reeder in an episode of the FBI Files called Death in Alaska. That might seem a bit blasé. Of course, John was beyond distraught. But Reed explained that detectives couldn't take his reaction for granted. After all, the spouse in a case like this would always be eyed critically at first. John never gave us any indication other than he wanted this case solved. Gave all the signs that anybody would give under the circumstances. Plus, being out of state is a pretty strong alibi. Early on, detectives were comfortable they could cross John off their list of possible suspects. They couldn't do the same with Paul Chapman, however. Nancy's brother-in-law said he was alone most of Saturday, so he had no one to back up his alibi. Based on how upset he'd been after discovering the bodies, detectives thought it was unlikely he was the culprit, but they weren't willing to rule him out. Luckily, everyone responding to the crime scene had been properly trained on how to secure such a scene. The first officer to arrive looked only long enough to confirm what Paul had said in his 911 call, that all three victims were dead. After that, the cop left the apartment and guarded the door so no one could come inside and contaminate the crime scene. Evidence technicians went inside and began the painstaking task of collecting everything and anything that might point to the killer. They used tape to lift fibers off the bodies and the surroundings. They dusted for fingerprints and used superglue fumes to highlight the latent ones. They noted evidence in the bathroom that looked as though someone had tried to clean up a bit. And they carefully bagged a wet washcloth that had what appeared to be a pubic hair stuck to it. A separate set of officers set out to canvas neighbors, which was no easy task, as Detective Mike Grimes explained. It was an apartment in a multi-unit apartment house, which was in a particular area of town that was surrounded by large multi-unit apartment houses. And we were looking at literally hundreds of, of dwellings in that area. Not only was that frustrating because it was time consuming, but it was also maddening because few people had seen or heard anything noteworthy. Neighbors hadn't heard a scream or a struggle. 
No one reported seeing a suspicious character lingering outside the complex. And those tidbits, plus the fact that the apartment's deadbolt had been locked, something that can only be done from either the inside or with a key if you're outside, at least gave police one clue. They quickly came to the belief that whoever killed the Newmans must have known them. All three were in their pajamas still, and Nancy wouldn't have quietly allowed a stranger into her house, certainly not when no one was properly dressed. Even though they were being incredibly careful, Anchorage police still worried that they would mess something up, and they refused to take that risk, not with this case. To summarize quickly, both Nancy, the mother, and Melissa, the eight-year-old, had been viciously sexually assaulted. Melissa's injuries are especially disturbing. Both those two had been bound at some point and ultimately strangled with a pillowcase that had been tied around their necks. Three-year-old Angie had her throat slit, nearly to the point of decapitation. This wasn't the work of someone who could be allowed to walk free in society. This scene was the type that would haunt even hardened investigators for the rest of their careers. So they began to wonder, what can this scene tell us about the killer? What kind of person would do this kind of crime? Uh, Was there significance in the way the people were murdered? Uh, that could give us some kind of leads as to who we were looking for, or at least what type of person. But that's not the kind of thing covered in typical police training. I'd say within the first day or so, we were getting some help from the FBI. Now, you've probably heard of criminal profilers. Mindhunter was a fascinating TV show about the FBI's first foray into the field in the late 70s and early 80s. Truth is, though, that the concept of profiling has been around far longer than that. When Jack the Ripper was killing sex workers in 1880s London, a police surgeon named Thomas Bond opined that the unknown killer in those cases was most likely a man of, quote, physical strength and great coolness, end quote, with a decidedly misogynistic bent. Granted, no one was ever charged with those slings, so you can't determine how accurate that profile was, but you can weigh some other attempts with varying results. For example, in the early 1940s, a psychoanalyst named Walter Langer wrote a report analyzing Adolf Hitler that ended up accurately predicting some of his impending behavior. For example, his curtailing of public appearances as more and more people became critical of his war, and also his suicide in the event of defeat. The FBI wasn't keen to enter the field when J. Edgar Hoover was at the helm because Hoover was skeptical of psychiatry. But after Hoover's death in 1972, two agents launched the Behavioral Science Unit of the Bureau. Six years later, two different agents would begin the interviews with serial killers, upon which Mindhunter was based. On TV, these agents are always jaw-droppingly accurate, but not so in real life. Profiling isn't a science, and there are documented cases in which profilers help convict innocent people in the absence of physical evidence. But if profiling isn't used in lieu of evidence, it can be a helpful investigative tool. Anchorage police reached out to the FBI and were assigned Agent Judson Ray, a profiler who'd been with the Bureau since 1980. To his credit, Ray was determined to stay objective while he assessed the Newman crime scene. When officers offered to run down a list of potential suspects, including some known sex offenders who lived near the Newmans, Ray said no. 
tell me nothing. I don't want to risk being swayed by anyone's theory. This is Ray later discussing the scene. Tremendous uh, rage that was inflicted uh, on the almost decapitated, the, uh, the young three-year-old suggested that there, to me, that there's nothing in my mind that I had uh, came across that would have been sufficient on its face to justify this kind of rage by a stranger. So he and police had separately come to the same conclusion. This was likely the work of someone who knew the family. And while there were some known sex offenders in the neighborhood, they weren't known specifically to the Newmans, so they didn't rise to the top of the suspect list. Nancy's husband, John, had already been cleared. Her brother-in-law, Paul, of course knew the family well. But Ray's analysis predicted a few things that didn't jibe with Paul being the killer. For example, he thought the killer was on the younger side, maybe aged 19 to 24, was unmarried and had a history of previous crimes against the weak, young, or old. Paul didn't fit any of these. This wouldn't have been enough to eliminate Paul if he'd seemed a good suspect to start with, but because detectives already felt like he was unlikely, this gave them permission to look somewhere else. And there was one person in the Newman's life that ticked every one of Ray's boxes. John's nephew, Kirby Anthony. FBI profiler Judson Ray had no idea when he described the type of person he thought might be responsible for the murders of Nancy, Melissa, and Angie Newman that his description fit one family member to a T. Kirby Anthony was 23 years old, unmarried, and had a history of previous crimes, particularly against people weaker than he. He'd also reportedly been cruel to animals, another huge red flag everyone should be aware of, and had been accused of domestic violence by past girlfriends. Plus, he'd been a suspect in Rock Creek Canyon, Idaho, in the rape and attempted murder of a young girl with mental disabilities. He had, just previous to coming to Alaska, been the focus of police attention down there. They had a some type of outdoor picnic outing. There was a 12-year-old that was found in the woods. She had been strangled, unconscious, near death, and she had been sexually assaulted. Their investigation uh, pointed right at Kirby Anthony. John Newman didn't know this. His sister, Kirby's mom, knew that her son was a suspect in the case, but didn't tell John even when Kirby briefly lived with the Newmans in their Anchorage apartment. Newman later said that he never would have allowed his nephew into his home if he'd known about the Idaho case and that the whole ordeal hurt his relationship with his sister. After the Newmans were killed, Kirby Anthony was one of the next of kin alerted by police the day the bodies were found. Detective Mike Grimes again. I told him that uh, we had some bad news for him, that uh, his aunt and uh, and her two little girls had been found dead just earlier that morning. As I recall, Kirby uh, grabbed his hair and, and started wailing and, and moaning, uh, but it was all dry-eyed, there was no tears. I'm always a little hesitant about reading into people's reaction to bad news because I've seen pretty much any reaction interpreted in a sinister way. I covered one case in which a guy didn't cry enough, according to one person, yet another person said the same guy cried too much, to the point of being performative. But setting his reaction to the news aside, Anthony did have a legitimate knock against him. When asked for his alibi, he gave one for all of Friday night, but not Saturday morning. And that became a big deal after the victim's autopsies. 
What we're able to, to demonstrate is that the murders happened early in the morning after the victims had, had uh, gotten up in the morning. One of the victims had had a bowl of cereal. The other was in the process of eating some cereal. The mother was in the process of having a cup of coffee. If the three had been killed Friday night, they likely wouldn't have cereal and coffee in their stomachs. According to Anthony, he had gone out partying with some friends Friday night. The crew drank, smoked some pot, and shared some cocaine. Anthony alone estimated he might have had two grams. To any government agencies monitoring my laptop, heads up that this is why I googled, is two grams of cocaine a lot? The answer, it's a decent bit. It depends on purity levels and yada yada. But one of those lines you see in the movies might only be a quarter gram. Anthony said that he and his friends partied until about 7 a.m., then went to an apartment he was sharing with a guy named Dan Grant. Around 8.45 a.m., he left Grant's and drove to Burger King and ordered a breakfast sandwich at the drive-thru window. He said he ate the sandwich inside of his pickup truck parked in a lot. After that, he drove to the house of a friend named Kirk Mullins, arriving there somewhere around 9 or 9.30 a.m. If all this were true, Anthony would have a pretty solid alibi. After the autopsy, authorities were comfortable that the slain trio died between 7 a.m. and noon. But Anthony had a problem. No one from Burger King remembered him ordering a sandwich, and he probably would have stood out because the place was usually slow that early on a Saturday morning. Not only that, but Mullins said Anthony didn't show up at his place until at least 10 a.m., maybe as late as 11. Even if Anthony's alibi up until 8 or 9 a.m. was accurate, there was still an hour or two unaccounted for, and that hour or two fell within the estimated time of death. But proving a murder case is about more than showing someone had opportunity. Authorities needed physical evidence, and the prime suspect being someone who had previously lived in the apartment posed some unique problems. Because think about it. Police collecting fingerprints are hoping to find ones that don't belong in the place. John and Nancy Newman had invited Anthony and his then-girlfriend Debbie Heck to stay in their daughter Melissa's room for a few weeks. Because of that, authorities would expect to find Anthony's fingerprints here and there. He slept there. He ate there. He showered there. That meant he would have left behind not just prints, but hairs, too. FBI agent Doug Dietrich was the guy tasked with sorting through the multiple vacuum sweepings to analyze each and every hair gathered from the apartment. I think probably the most difficult aspect of this case for me was in trying to account for every hair that was found in that residence. And that's something that's not usually done and, and uh, seen as there, there are often too many hairs to deal with. Uh, but in this case, it was, it was a monumental task to do that. He used two different high-powered microscopes to examine the hairs. Because of the vast quantities of hairs and other items that were found in the bag, uh, I had to look at the vacuum bag from a layer standpoint. That is, what was the most recently deposited or recently vacuumed material. He also had to note how fresh the hairs appeared to be. The condition of the surface of hairs, uh, the condition of the ends, the roots uh, will often indicate how long a hair may have been in a particular environment. Diedrich was looking for more than head hairs. He was looking for pubic hairs because two such hairs had been found on Melissa's body. 
But matching hair samples is way tougher than CSI makes it look. Hairs are better for excluding people than they are for incriminating them because scientists can only say whether or not hair samples are consistent. If two hairs are not consistent, they didn't come from the same body. But if they are consistent, that only means they could have come from the same body. There's no way to be definite about it. But one of the pubic hairs found in the Newman's apartment had a unique, albeit pretty gross, characteristic. There was a partial egg case attached to it. As in, authorities were looking not just for someone with similar hair, but also someone with body lice. By the time this was discovered, Anthony had already voluntarily submitted hair and blood samples to police, and wouldn't you know it, he had lice. None of the other five or six people still on the potential suspect list had lice. That was probably the most significant breakthrough. Uh, at that point, we could start focusing on Kirby as the suspect. Anthony tweaked his story. While he initially said he hadn't been to the Newman's place in a bit, now he said actually he'd showered there the week before the murders because the shower at his new place, the one he shared with Dan Grant, was super gross and he didn't want to use it. And also, he said he didn't want to give Dan Grant genital lice, though apparently he was less concerned about spreading that to his aunt and cousins. That was a kind of a, an indicator of what we were going to be dealing with with Kirby from the get-go, was these little lies that weren't necessary but were thrown out to us. Judson Ray, the FBI profiler, had the luxury of not caring what Anthony said, ever. Other investigators were in charge of conducting interviews with him. Ray focused entirely on the crime scene. And something that stood out to him about the scene was that washcloth I mentioned earlier. It was found in the Newman's bathroom and had a pubic hair with egg casings stuck to it. More importantly, though, it appeared to have been used by the killer to clean himself up after the crime. It was obvious to me that he had to that he had to go somewhere where he, where well, he couldn't go there all bloody, which sort of got into, this guy's not a loner living, living alone somewhere. Now, had this case happened today with the same amount of evidence left behind, it would have been a cinch to solve. That's because the creep who did it left behind semen, which of course is easily identifiable nowadays thanks to DNA. But this case happened right at the start of the DNA era. In fact, the first ever U.S. conviction based on DNA evidence came in 1987, just a few months after the Newmans were killed. That's when Tommy Lee Andrews was convicted of rape. Before that, scientists in criminal cases with semen available usually testified what type of blood the semen donor had. That was, again, helpful for narrowing the pool, but not nearly as definitive as what we do today. It's not that DNA testing didn't exist before Andrew's case. It did. But it was more of a commercial enterprise used to help people privately determine paternity. Remember Jerry Springer? That changed with the rape of an Orange County, Florida woman in May of 1986. The woman was inside her apartment when a man burst in and raped her at knife point. A string of attacks on other women followed. Usually, the man was careful to conceal his face and rarely left fingerprints, though he had left one on the frame of a screen he had removed to get inside one of the apartments. Finally, the next spring, a woman called police about a prowler outside of her place. 
officers found Andrews and ultimately matched his fingerprint with the one collected from the screen, but they were worried that wouldn't be enough to convince a jury. According to a piece in the International Symposium on Human Identification, a state prosecutor on the case got an idea. He'd seen a magazine ad touting DNA testing as a way to resolve paternity disputes. Plus, he'd heard that cops were using DNA in criminal cases in England, so he thought, why can't we try that here? They did, and even though the DNA testing back then was nowhere near as sensitive as it is now, the results pointed to Andrews, and he ultimately was convicted of multiple rapes and sentenced to some hundred years behind bars. Which brings us back to the Newman case, in which, suffice it to say, there was a lot of semen left behind. Police had to decide, do we try out this newfangled DNA testing technology and risk it being tossed out as too new or experimental to be reliable? Or do we go with the tried and trusted blood typing approach and hope that it's enough to convince the jury? But first, they had another dilemma to deal with. A detective called Anthony and asked him to come to the station to discuss some of the forensic testing that had been returned from the FBI. And Anthony agreed, but then quickly fled town. He told his roommate, Dan Grant, that he was going to Canada. Grant promised not to alert authorities, but seemed to have struggled with what to do for a good seven hours before deciding to call the police. By the time police reached border agents between Alaska and Canada, Anthony had already made it past the U.S. side and was in between it and the Canadian border. Kirby Anthony had no idea that Canadian officials had been tipped off about him when he pulled up to the customs gate. Anchorage police, having failed to stop Anthony at the customs gate on the U.S. side, called the Canadian side and said, hey, there's a guy driving across the 26-mile stretch of no man's land between the countries who we suspect was involved in three horrific murders. The Canadian authorities turned him away, and once Anthony reached the U.S. again, he was arrested by state police for something piddly, driving on a suspended license, because that agency didn't have jurisdiction over the Newman's case. This bought time for Anchorage authorities to arrive and hit Anthony with the big charges. Three counts of murder, two counts of sexual assault, and one count of kidnapping. The kidnapping count might sound a little superfluous, but Alaska law at the time considered the act of restraining someone during a sexual assault as its own separate crime. Oddly enough, by the way, that was apparently the count that pissed Anthony off the most. He jumps up and screaming, what is this kidnapping stuff? Which struck us as odd because uh, here he was charged with three counts of murder and, and two counts of uh, sexual assault, and he's screaming about the kidnapping charge. As intrigued as authorities were about the possibility of introducing DNA evidence into the trial, the decision ultimately was made for them. They couldn't, because the testing wasn't finished before the trial began. That worried some investigators, who by this point were certain Anthony was guilty and terrified that he would walk away free. This fear was amplified because the judge ruled against prosecutors in several key matters. Here are just some of the issues lawyers were admonished not to mention in front of the jury. That Nancy had refused to give Anthony a key to the apartment even while he was staying there because she didn't trust him, yet Anthony had possession of John's key after the murder. 
that a few days before her death, she told her sister that she was afraid of Anthony, that her husband John had been perturbed when he learned Anthony was still hanging around the apartment while he was out of state, that Anthony had been charged and convicted with previous crimes, that he'd been a suspect in the sexual assault against the Idaho 12-year-old, that he was actually a suspect in a separate Anchorage murder that technically remains unsolved to this day, and that the girlfriend who had recently dumped him, Debbie Heck, the one who had also stayed with the Newmans, broke up with him because he was abusive and she was scared of him. The judge ruled this way to make sure that the trial was fair for Anthony, which is what judges are supposed to do. But it worried investigators that jurors wouldn't get to learn about the Kirby Anthony that they had come to know so well. But Anthony did investigators a favor. He served as his own co-counsel, testified on his own behalf, and also delivered part of his own closing argument, all of which hurt his case beyond measure. There's a reason why most defense lawyers advise their clients not to take the stand. Most suspects think they're a lot smarter than they really are. Anthony misspoke, backtracked, hemmed, hawed, and gave conflicting answers to seemingly simple questions. It also didn't help Anthony's case that police found John Newman's camera in his apartment. Apparently, John liked photography and had a higher-end 35mm single-lens reflex camera with some valuable lenses. This being 1987, long before digital cameras made any dent in the industry, this camera couldn't show you a preview of the image. It was the type that required the user to set the aperture and shutter speed and adjust the settings for different speeds of film. It wasn't a point-and-shoot camera. Anthony had an explanation as to why the Newman's camera was in his apartment. He said that he, too, was a photography fanatic, and that Nancy knew that and had lent him the camera. He even had an explanation as to why John said, That's weird. Nancy never told me about lending out my favorite camera. Anthony said that Nancy told him not to tell her husband because John would have a shit fit. John said there's no way Nancy would have done that, but of course, that's a hard thing to prove. What was easier to prove was that Anthony had no idea how to use a manual 35mm camera. The prosecutor on the case, Bill Ingoldson, was pretty clever in his questioning by asking some, "Oh shucks, how do you work this thing? questions of Anthony about the camera in front of the jury. Anthony couldn't answer, leading Ingoldson to ask, why would you borrow a camera you didn't know how to use? Testimony from a neighbor named John O'Dell further damaged Anthony. O'Dell said that he had swung by Anthony's place after the murders were believed to have happened, but before the bodies had been discovered, because Anthony owed him some money for marijuana. He said Anthony offered him a 35-millimeter camera to pay down his debt, but O'Dell declined. He did accept about $30 in rolled coins, however. Now, if you remember... Nancy kept her tips in a tin in her kitchen, and that tin was empty when the bodies were found. The kitchen housed other tins, yet the tip tin was the only one pulled from its spot above the microwave and pilfered. One of Anthony's fingerprints was found on the underside of the lid. Another place we located one of uh, Kirby's fingerprints was on the back side of the door to the mother's bedroom. And again, it's its position was significant in that it led us to believe that perhaps uh, someone was trying to escape out of the room and he already had some other trace evidence on his hand, he slammed the door shut, 
uh, transferring not only his fingerprint, but some of the other trace evidence that was found in the scene. The most disturbing print discovered was a palm print on the wall in Melissa's bedroom. While Anthony's lawyers said he had likely just pressed against the wall, getting out of bed one morning while he stayed there, prosecutors argued the angle didn't seem to fit that theory. The angle made sense, though, if Anthony had been positioned over the bed while assaulting and strangling Melissa. That evidence was presented to the jury, as were experts testifying about bodily fluids found in the various rooms of the apartment. We are able to show through serological findings that Melissa, the eight-year-old, had been assaulted in the mother's bedroom and that she had crossed the bed and was actively bleeding at the time. And then uh, she is subdued somehow and held in a position in that room for a period of time. The jury also heard from FBI agent Judson Ray. He wasn't permitted to say all that much, but it was still significant because it marked the first time testimony of an FBI profiler was accepted in a U.S. court, period. It was a good case to test the waters in terms of uh, whether or not this was going to be accepted in, in our judicial system. And for that, the implications are probably uh, far-reaching because uh, it opened the door. Courts are still rightly cautious on what they'll allow profilers to say in front of jurors. Profiling is just a tool, after all. It's not verifiable science. But Anthony's case is one that shows its potential value. Ray's predictions about the killer in the case weren't evidence on their own, but his insight helped police narrow down the suspect pool so they could focus on finding the physical evidence needed for a conviction. On June 3, 1988, the eight-week trial of Kirby Anthony ended with the jury finding him guilty on every count. He ultimately was sentenced to 357 years in prison, where he remains to this day. To research this case, I read the book Murder in the Family by Burl Bearer and contemporary news coverage. The Death in Alaska episode of the FBI Files was hugely helpful for audio clips. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>